warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Hi, Scott here with me at the other end of Skype as it is lockdown, although that's no different to most weeks. Hello, mate. Stephen is here somewhere. Hi. Hello, mate. How's it going? It's okay. It's okay. I don't want to dwell too much on the lockdown because we've um, focused on it in previous episodes, talking about, you know, this very bizarre situation, which no doubt will still be going on. By the time this episode goes out, a uh, special episode because we're honoured to have a guest is making his reappearance here. It's Anthony from the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast. Anthony, good afternoon. Hello, how you doing, guys? Oh, fine, mate. Thank you. I'm the hit professionalism. You are absolutely <laughs> this week's yeah. hint. Yeah, <laughs> you are the exception to the rule. You're the one that brings more than the hint of professionalism <laughs> to this podcast. We were just chatting before we came on air that. Stephen, to, to be honest, do you do a great deal of research or sort of like copious <laughs> note taking or anything? When, you know, before we sit down and record on a Sunday. In, in fairness, um, apart from watching the film, uh, <laughs> the the um, I, I must admit the the only real bit of of work I put in is into the Hall of Fame. Yes. Apart from that, um, I. <laughs> I take the same attitude as I, as I do to, to everything else in my life, and I just wing it, really. Yeah, I, I <laughs> um, will tend to, you know, jot a couple of bits down that I think we need A couple of bullet to, points, maybe, yeah, but that's it. technical stuff or trivia, I may make a little note or two, but Anthony, um, he sent me a text last night saying something about seven pages of notes. Seven and a half. Seven and a half, it's got up. <laughs> um so with that in mind, we've decided to turn this episode over to Anthony, it's, you know, to, to, to be fair, because... <laughs> well, no, your original plan was to turn me off and then you two to go through my notes, because I've sent them to you. <laughs> well, plagiarism at his best. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you have, because there is so much to this movie mm. that we've got a danger of missing some very important points, I think, because in a general conversation, we could just wash over a lot of stuff here. So mm. we've got some form of <laughs> formality to this, this week, Stephen, just, would, would you say? Well, <laughs> structure, yeah. for once, is maybe what we're, we're obviously usually missing. Yes. Um, and this time around, we actually do um, have that because <laughs> we, we, are, we are blessed with having the... the research having been done for us yeah which um is incredibly helpful um if, if we just sort of it's a nice service isn't it yeah it's, well it's good to to have um and uh, you know <laughs> explains why you're single perhaps but um it's uh it, it, 
it certainly maybe it's just because you're an English teacher but um, <laughs> it, it, absolutely the research that you put in is, is is astounding and it allows us to have a bit more structure and um, hopefully we won't miss anything can I make it clear? Can I make it clear? The singleness led to the research, not the other way around. All right. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. That's. We'll. We'll. We'll go with your story. We'll, Fair enough. Yeah. This will all become um, evident as we as we discuss this movie. I think it was my choice, wasn't it, in the end? Because Anthony had selected a couple previously. Mm-hmm. Certainly yep. selected how I won the war. What we're going to do? We're going to go into Lolita. It's the first thing I want to talk about. Actually, let's let's do this now before we do the, the cast list and all that lot. Real Britannia, mm-hmm. a very British podcast about very British movies. At first glance, to those that have not seen this movie, they're going to argue the fact that this is not a British movie. Agree or disagree? Yeah, it's tenuous. Mm. I think it is a British movie. I think one of the things we might get onto, but um, certainly on this viewing, um, I did notice more um, that it was actually filmed over here. The British housing and and mm-hmm. and the way they tried to basically dress it up has been in the states, but it was actually over over here. And obviously, uh, uh, the at least two of the main cast members are, who sort of are on screen and taking your attention are, are British, even though one of them's pretending um, not to be. I know um, this is what I'm saying, yeah. but it is to my mind a British movie, even though. Kubrick was American. He was based over here. He wouldn't fly. He had, you know, a famous fear of flying, didn't he? I think. Yeah, yeah. This was one of the first movies he did after Spartacus. After he moved here, immediately after it Spartacus. was, was he? Yeah. It was the first one. Yeah. And if you notice, some of the supporting cast are American and Canadian, but they are British-based actors and actresses. Like Lois Maxwell's in this. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Amongst other. But people. of course, you've got James Mason in the title role. <laughs> And he's extremely English with his Yorkshire accent. We've mentioned yeah. this. Um, Not my best. Yeah, sorry. It's Not better than mine. Um, we've, we've mentioned Mr. Mason and his Yorkshire accent, haven't we, Steve, previously? We have. And if you, you know, you want, um, uh, if you want him playing close to what would be the, the accent of where he's from, you're probably looking mm. at Spring and Port Wine. His English accent isn't necessarily Huddersfield in in its normal sense. Um, there's not many people walking on Huddersfield with a James Mason um, accent. I will um, attest to that. But yeah. Um, but yes, he is very much um, English in this, without a doubt. Um, old world, yeah. as they call it. Well, a serious. Can I ask you this? This is a serious question. Is there a posh? Your is there a posh Northern accent, like a Yorkshire accent or Lancashire? Serious question. There's um there's two answers to that question because there there are the, you know obviously are people who are who are the upper class who um mm. sound like they're upper class no matter where they're from, mm. but there there is um there is a difference between something that's called broad Yorkshire mm. and mm. high Yorkshire at two ends of the scale and um apparently <laughs> this is not me saying it's just what I've I've been told apparently mm. uh, broad Yorkshire is 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 the thick strong. Mm version of the accent you get on, on Last of the Summer Wine and such. High Yorkshire apparently um, is is people from um, York. Oh, right. <laughs> um, See, I was going to say Harrogate, but the York... Which, and, and, and Harrogate up the road, <coughs> yeah, but, uh, they, and that's um, where there's a, there's a somewhat different pronunciation of some of the... Mm. Of it, but <laughs> Yorkshire's a big place. To be honest, I can, I can yeah. spot different Yorkshire accents and, and work out where those people from within Yorkshire, because mm. um, it's a yeah. 
biggest counties. So you certainly know that in in, in Leeds, uh, there's, uh, there's there's a lot of the the way they finish off words like Kayleigh, and it's it's the the mm. end the lick at the end um, just is distinctive to to West Yorkshire and particularly to to Leeds. So yes, so there is a posher version. It doesn't sound like James Mason. <laughs> No, no, it's it's been yeah. very unique, isn't it? Yeah, unique delivery, like, definitely. Yeah, no, because it's such a, a an English or British thing, isn't it? Because in other countries, I mean, I've I've lived in Italy, Spain. I've got American friends, Australian. You don't really have that thing where as soon as someone opens your mouth, you op- opens your mouth. As soon as someone opens, <laughs> yeah, they'll do that yeah. for you in Yorkshire. If you no, in your end, those words. Yeah, as soon as <laughs> let me start that again. Yeah. <laughs> As soon as you open your mouth in England, people have a more or less more or less have an idea of your socioeconomic status, you know. Whereas in other countries, I think it's just, uh, I suppose, more working class just has a stronger accent. So in this Australia, you get a ah, oh, g'day mate, there's a guy, yeah, I'm from the countryside, that kind of thing. <laughs> the really rough accent is more. I I, I was trained at drama school, gentlemen. It's, it's, so. it's like podcasting with Mike Yarwood, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, into a different era there completely (laughs) look at that so for the sake of tonight's episode this Mm. is a british movie we're going to say it's a british movie this is a podcast about british movies it's going to have to be otherwise we're we're stuffed okay so we we may touch on some of the aspects of what makes this a british movie and as you said Stephen, some of the production values that obviously make it look as if it's filmed over in this country which Mm. incredibly obvious so Let's play the trailer. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back straight after this. so late coming home from school yesterday afternoon yesterday yesterday what was yesterday yesterday was thursday oh well um was i late yes you were you finished school at three o'clock you were not home until six o'clock that's right that's right michelle and i um stayed to watch football practice in the frigid queen what do you mean in the frigid queen i was driving around and i thought i saw you through the window. Oh, yeah, well, we stopped there for a malt afterwards. What difference does it make? You were sitting at a table with two boys. Yeah, well, Roy and Rex just happened to sit down with us. Roy and Rex? The co-captains, the football team. I thought we understood no dates. What do you mean, no dates? They just sat down at our table. I don't want you around them. They're nasty-minded boys. Oh, you're a fine one to talk about someone else's mind. Don't avoid the issue. I told you, no dates. It wasn't a date. It was a date. 
It wasn't a date. It was a date, Lolita. It was not a date. It was a date. It wasn't a date. Well, whatever it was that you had yesterday afternoon, I don't want you to have it again. And while we're on the subject, how did you come to be so late on Saturday afternoon? Saturday, I went to my piano lesson. Your piano lesson? I thought that was on Wednesday. No, it was changed to Saturday, remember? Between two and four, Miss Starch, piano. Well, ask Michelle. She was with me. Ask Michelle. That's what you always say to me. Well, now, for a change, I'm going to ask you something about Michelle. <laughs> you can't have her. She belongs to a Marine. I will ignore that idiotic joke. Why does she give me these searching looks whenever she comes to the house? How should I know? Have you told her anything about us? No. Have you? You've told her nothing. You think I'm crazy? You spend too much time with that girl. I don't want you to see her so often. Oh, come on. She's the only friend I've got in this stinking world. You never let me have any fun. No fun? You have all the fun in the world. We have fun together, don't we? I, whenever you want something, I buy it for you automatically. I take you to concerts, to museums, to movies. I do all the housework. Who does the, the tidying up? I do. Who does the cooking? I do. You and I, we have lots of fun. Don't we, Lolita? Come here. Still love me? Completely. You know that. Lolita, released in the UK 1962, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Screenplay. Mm, we may have to discuss this. It says here on IMDb the screenplay was by Vladimir Nabokov based on mm-hmm. his novel. There is some controversy over that. Starring James Mason, Shelley Winters, Sue Lyon and Peter Sellers. The synopsis. Mm-hmm. With a screenplay penned by the author himself, Stanley Kubrick brings Nabokov's controversial tale of forbidden love to the screen. Humbert Humbert, James Mason, is a European professor who relocates to an American suburb renting a room from lonely widow Charlotte Hayes, played by Shelley Winters. Humbert marries Charlotte, but only to nurture his obsession with her comely teenage daughter Lolita, played by Sue Lyon. After Charlotte's sudden death, Humbert has Lolita all to himself. Or does he? Pretty awful synopsis there. There's a lot more to this movie. <laughs> yeah. We are going to change the sort of running order and the way we're going to play this today because of your copious notes that we are going to use as our guide it would only be fair for us to do so what I want to do in case it gets lost amongst all the minutiae of what we're going to talk about in a minute a very important part of Real Britannia is the Hall of Fame and I'm waiting in the wings with, with the keychain there to open the front door to the village hall itself Stephen, do we have any new entries or notable mentions to the Hall of Fame this week mate? Um, well, you, you could be mistaken, uh, you know, forgiven really for mistaking this as being a film that didn't really have anybody mm. um, to throw in, but um, it, it's not quite the case. Okay. Um, now, one thing we do need to, to clarify is whether um, Peter Cushing and, and Christopher Lee count um, because they have a screen appearance because oh, yeah. one <laughs> of their films is being watched. Oh, so, so so that's a, a technical point that we need to, um, to to clarify because that would give Peter Cushing his second appearance, and Christopher Lee he would um, therefore get into the Village Hall of Fame with his um, third. I'm um, I'm tempted to say yes. Well, I I am as well. 
because they, were, they were there. We've included um, people on lesser grounds. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So, so in that case, yeah. So we've got Peter Cushing previously in Violent Fairground, and and Christopher Lee in Scott of the Antarctic, and Wicker Man, obviously. So he's um, inducted. Christopher Lee is is one of two people that gets into the Village Hall of Fame, which is James Mason is the other one, um, previously been in Wicked Lady and Georgie Girl. Of course, yeah. So that that was quite useful as well. We do actually have a, um, somebody who's making the fourth appearance, and that's Lois Maxwell. Without appearing in a Bond movie. Uh, uh, one Bond movie so far, sorry. Yeah, in Wish, Wish Us Love. Love. And on top of that, um, we, we do actually have somebody who's uh, making their, their sixth appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Jim O'Brady, as, as oh, we the, all know, the, the famous Jim O'Brady. The famous Jim O'Brady. <laughs> oh, tell, so, us, tell us who he was in this. Who was Jim O'Brady? Uh, in this, oh, I'm not sure exactly sure. He was just. He was just um, there, wasn't he? <laughs> he? He was just there. I think the um, he was uh, the, one of the delegates to the police um, conference. Okay, okay, yeah. So you, you know, blink and you miss him. Just being <laughs> around as it as it happens. He was there, but. Um, not maybe a, a face that most people would would recognise or um, even us at the time of seeing. Mm. Um, there was there was also um, a, a guy. <laughs> there was also a guy. Um, actually, his name is Guy. Guy Standeven. Guy Standeven. Um, guy Standeven, who, who um, <laughs> actually is is from Scarborough in Yorkshire. So okay. you know, again, another Yorkshireman in this. Um, who was just an uncredited stagehand. Um, in the school play, and uh, he has his seventh appearance. No, 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 no! You're you're making this up now, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I mean, I've just hacked into IMDb and, and added him. Um, seventh. Added him in. I mean, you know, it's filmography. I mean, he's he's been in three hundred and twenty-four different things. So that's um, more than the Harrington, surely. Yeah. So he's so, but he's he's not up uh, Mr. Harrington's um, mm. appearances on here yet. But he is making his study be able to uh, finally report that we we have another appearance from the the wonderful Marianne Stone, yeah. the queen of this podcast, <laughs> um, who is who is making her eighth appearance. Um, oh. Bless, and, it's, it's and bless her. She had a, a, a more prominent part in this, and some of the films she's in um, looked fantastic. Yes. Um, had an astounding character name as well, which apparently is an anagram. Um, it is. It and is. it was great, just great to see her on screen doing what she does well, which is just, you know, just being Marianne Stone, basically. Marianne Stone, I mean, yeah, what more can we say? Is Could I just one of the highlights of the film, to be perfectly honest, for me is, is Marianne Stone of being course in it, it always. Is. So when, when her name a... appeared in the credits, it was like, yes, she's in this one. You know, I forgot or I didn't realise. Did you know this thing about the anagram, Anthony, of her name? No, no. Right, no, her character's know. name, I mean, you might have to quickly jot this down. Her character's name is Vivian Darkbloom. Vivian, with an I, with an A or an, or an E? Uh, with an A, Vivian Darkbloom. Yeah. Vivian Darkbloom. Oh, have I got to work out what that's an anagram? Well, it's all right. I can put the countdown yeah. clock on <laughs> if you <laughs> The real pretending yeah, conundrum. Yeah, it's half past four now, yeah. <laughs> Tell him, Stephen. Go on. Well, it's an anagram of the um, author's name of the actual. Ah, Vladimir Novikov. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Big Vivian Darkbloom. Oh, so that's is that seven or eight? Did you say, mate? For, for that's that's her eighth appearance, <laughs> frankly. So yes, she's. Is she anything. still 
top of the tree with regard to actresses? Uh, actresses, I think she still is the highest um, entry for actresses, but obviously not overall because we do have Mr. Victor Harrington. Who's, yeah. Um, what was he on? He was on his tenth appearance, Something I think it like was. That, I believe, yeah. Um, yeah, ten appearances for, for him. So, but wow. uh, no, she's the highest appearing um, female. Just her, it keeps being uh, her and, and and the Hickson, I think, the that Hickson's, keeps her playing. Yeah. She's dropped down a bit, but we've got a couple of carry-ons that Tony and I have recorded, and, and the Hickson's in at least one of those. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you some details later so we can update Hall of Fame records. Anybody oh, else notable to mention? Before we close the doors on the Hall of Fame, as you say, a lot of them being being Canadian American that transposed over here. Mm. The, not any directly as far as, as as I can say, as far as what became um, big names other than other than Peter Sellers. One thing to mention about him is that um, in during this, um, he plays you know plays a, a disguised character, <laughs> which I'm I'm always surprised at anybody who um, can't <laughs> recognise. <laughs> Uh, that Peter Sellers is it's Peter Sellers in disguise because oh, yeah. he always still looks like Peter Sellers. Wonder and, you were um, going to mention this. And um, <laughs> so, but but um, oh, you know, so I'm surprised that the, the characters in in this um, didn't recognise that it was Peter Sellers, um, the, the same person in front of them. Shall um, I tell just by looking at them? Because I'm not sure anybody in real life would would not well. recognise. Yeah. Shall I tell Anthony the story? Because you're being very cryptic there. Um, <laughs> many years ago, Stephen, this was seven years ago, possibly. Something like that, yeah. A very early Stinking Paws episode with my original co-host, Charlie. And I introduced him to Dr. Strangelove, Kubrick, obviously. Mm. He'd never seen it. And we're recording this show throughout the day. And we're just about to get to the Dr. Strangelove review. And... Mm. We had a Hall of Fame going initially then as well, you know, number of appearances. And I said, all right, do we include Peter Sellers for the multiple roles? And he went, what do you mean? I went, Peter Sellers, he played more than one role. He went, did he? Oh, God. He had sat through the whole of Dr. Strangelove thinking that Peter Sellers was just, I think, the president. I think that was it. None of the others... Oh. Yeah, I'm sure it was, it was a really bizarre one. I was going to say Mandrake. Yeah. No, Mandrake. I think it was Mandrake. I think it was Mandrake. Was it Mandrake? Okay, it was one yeah. of the characters yeah. he recognised as Peter. Didn't realise he was, yeah. Didn't realise he was Dr. Strangelove, didn't realise he was, you know, the, the president, whatever it was. And then, coincidentally, <laughs> with regard to this podcast, 2015 film Legend about the craze, famously, oh, yeah. Tom Hardy plays Ronnie and Reggie. Tony mm. sat through the whole of the movie, thinking it was two separate actors. <laughs> he, got in, he got in a row with his sister-in-law over it. You really, we can tell this story because it, it's, it's on a previous on podcast. Yep, yep. Um, he, got, mm. he, he got in a row with his, his sister-in-law about this because um, she was saying it was and he was adamant it wasn't. And then he went and checked. <laughs> <laughs> so every time Peter yeah. Sellers comes up, in a movie and there is some element of disguise or, or Peter Sellers doing something like that. We're always reminded, aren't we, mate? Always. We are. We always have a good laugh at other people's expense, which isn't like us at all. Um, so, so unless he counts as, as two appearances in this, which I don't think because he's not playing two different characters no, as such, no. he's playing one character in disguise, yeah. um, then um, then he only has his, his two appearances. That's um, fine. 
but I'm happy well, to include Mr. Cushing and Mr. Lee. I, I, that, I, yeah, more than that's happy. But to then we, we've, we've added in, and we, well, it's as it's as tenuous people. it's as tenuous as Lolita being a British film. So let's go with it. Shall that's we? fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a tenuous question. There's one. There's this one you missed actually. There's a rumor that Terry Thomas was hiding under Lolita's bed, but I can't confirm that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm only joking. Absolutely. Mar- Marianne Stone was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know me. I always bring everything around to the Beatles. Yeah. I reckon I, I'd never seen her. Now, now I now I think of it. I'll I'll, uh, you I'll know, know her. She is, carry on. You, you have totally. seen her in many many things yeah. you've seen her. You just not recognised her. Yeah. She played, totally. She used to. She played the the you know the Dowager Princess, and then in the next film she's there with you know with a, a playing like a, a a gypsy's wife with a <laughs> um, a fag permanently hanging out the side of her mouth when yeah. she delivers all of her lines. She was so versatile and, and yeah. um, such a great supporting actress. Yeah. Um, she was just, you, you never really, unless you were actually a, a, a Marianne Stone fanatics like me and Scott, um, <laughs> then you, you don't notice her as... No, who as 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 the actress, you just you just sort of glance over her almost mm-hmm. as as just playing the part. Um, yeah. But yes, it's become a, a bit of an obsession for us. She's, she's the backbone to this podcast, mate. Her and Victor yeah. Harrington are propping this podcast up. It's certainly not me and Stephen, that's for sure. No, I'm I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say I recognised her from a hard day's night. Yes, Scott. she's. Are you a mod or a rocker? Oh, Ringo says, no, I'm a mocker. I'm a mocker, and that's Marianne Stone. Line. Yes. That's yeah. her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so look out for her. 200-plus credited appearances, I think, Stephen. Is that right? I'm sure there's over 200. I had a yeah. look, mm. yeah. Yeah. She seems to be able to play everything from sort of Lady Godiva to mm-hmm. Confessions of a Window Cleaner. That's, you know? that's our Marianne, yes. She, as far as we can work out, She's she's the only person that's been in like every one of the sort of important pillars of British cinema. She's been in a Carry On. She's been in a James Bond. She's been in a Normal Wisdom. You know all these kind mm. of things. She's 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 across the the board. Been in in sort of all the different sort of series franchises and things. Um, and so you know Hammer. She was in as well yeah. and and things. So she's she she is the pillar. <laughs> of, of, of this podcast as well as British cinema in our opinion and, and we won't hear a bad word said about her ever which is a shame we never we never got to send her any fan mail when she was still alive because uh, we certainly would have done yeah yeah God bless her excellent okay um, as we said Stephen and I are totally unprepared well as prepared as we could be for this podcast mm. looking down sort of bullet points and notes that you've made the first thing that we need to discuss is the book, is the source material Con- mm. controversial even before the movie was made? Here we go. We're going to wind you up, Anthony, and let you go. Tell us, <laughs> tell, us, tell us what you want to tell us about the book, mate. Well, have either of you guys read the book, first of all? No. Or not? Okay. No. Okay. Yeah, basically, I mean, I, I read it um, on the road, so to speak. I went to Colombia in 2015 and I read it. And uh, it might seem like a strange kind of travel book, but of course, there, this is kind of a road book and the movie becomes a road movie in a second you have to be very open-minded i mean i'd heard about this book i knew obviously about how controversial it was but someone who i kind of you know there's people who like recommend stuff to you and you kind of trust them someone said to me just read this book with an open mind try and almost forget the subject matter and just appreciate the language and this guy he was an incredible writer so if you can kind of 
divorce yourself from the subject matter and just revel in this this language i mean yes the way he describes basically a 12 i think she's 12 and a half in the in the book it is very weird but i mean i was heartened i mean i was very very glad to find out that nothing no one's ever found anything in nabokov's life to suggest that you know he was he had this interest or he acted upon it which i'm so you can almost like read the book feeling less weird about it when you know that what actually happened was that both Nabokov and Humbert Humbert in the book, uh, there's much more background in the book, basically. And what happens with Humbert, basically, when he's, I think, 14, he's making love to a 14-year-old girl. It's a puppy love thing. Mm. And he's interrupted. And the girl later dies of typhus. And Nabokov said, oh, you know, I had a romance when I was 10, you know, a kind of very innocent puppy love thing. So I think the idea, the idea in the book, which really fleshes out Humbert Humbert, a lot more in the film is that he's had a case of um you know arrested developments what they call it isn't it mm. so he's sort of interrupted with this puppy love and it's almost like his sexual maturity stops then so even though he grows up to be you know 45 50 years old there's a certain part of his development has stopped but the descriptions of the later i'm just going to give you a couple of descriptions so these are not really sexual so that they don't sound too weird you know he says lolita light of my life fire of my loins my sin my soul lolita there's all kinds of other references but he describes it i was thinking about this he describes it more like she's a perfect work of art you know the way you might describe something in nature you know something like that and again as i said you have to divorce yourself from the fact that she's 12 years old and nobody's really ascertained from navikov why he decided to write about this because Nabokov wrote loads and loads of novels. I mean, I've only read this one, but I'm sort of aware generally of his work. Mm. But I think perhaps later on we could talk about uh, the book and the film comparison because there's actually a lot of difference. Yeah. Uh, the book took five years to write, it was rejected by lots of publishers, not surprisingly. And then it was published by Olympia Press in France, which is a publisher that specializes in sort of trashy erotic literature but then graham green of course famous novelist was writing in the sunday times and he supported it he called it uh, the third best novel of 1955 which is very precise of him <laughs> but the book the book the book now has sold 50 million copies to date and you know i think it's beyond the scope of this of a film podcast to wonder about why so many people are interested in this book fair enough but mm. I, all i would say really is that we'll get to a comparison later but the book has a hell of a lot more backstory and, and this was the 50s wasn't it this wasn't published early 60s at the start of the sexual revolution 50, this is 55 or something isn't it this 55 was, yeah. yeah i said it took him five years to write it so it was a it was a long sort of gestation period of it and then just the final thing groucho marx uh groucho marx never short of a great quote he said i'm going to put off reading lolita a few years until she's 18 <laughs> <laughs> good old groucho yeah knew doris day before she was a virgin yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um basically nabokov grew up in a sort of aristocratic uh setting he spent a lot of time alone i mean as writers I mean, writers by nature of having to write novels they tend to be loners and they spend a lot of time on their own the humbert humbert character is sort of very sort of absorbed in his own thoughts and i think that's where that came from yeah i'll i'll, I'll reference the book later if that's all right when we compare the film and the there book are, the there end. are a few differences from what you know i've been yeah, reading quite a lot really. couple of days Stephen, you haven't read the book but you're fully aware of it and its impact and its history absolutely and you know the there is the the reputation 
of the book just to mm. kind of the weird thing about it is in Lolita um now when you you say the, the word yeah. um as this cachet to it that actually uh, all this reputation to it and has this meaning which doesn't mean the book it, it means um a young girl who is in some way you know predatory of older um and it's not necessarily true of you know it's reflected in the film as such because obviously the way that it was adapted was to sort of get around that mm-hmm. but um it is a, a kind of a, a backwards implication on it that now it's because it's become known for for that backwardsly as 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 lolita as as the word usage as i say i haven't read the book and i know but i do know from passing notes uh, and um reading a bit in the past about it that this the film doesn't follow the same path. Uh, not only was the screenplay not in, not, in, not in keeping with was basically thrown out from compared to what the, the the plot of the book is in some way. There's a lot of details that have been changed. How much of that was to actually appease the censors mm. is is one thing. But on the other side, I think there has been changes in it that actually Im- improve it as a piece of entertainment on screen i mean obviously there's the order in which the events are told on screen which is one of the main elements um along with the expansion of some of the characters or amalgamation of some of the the characters in the book into single players within the actual film but certainly i know that that there was a lot of working around changing the age of her and and such like in order to make it that it was it would pass the censors and i'm not sure how I'm not sure how um, inclined I am to go and read the book. To be to be fair, but, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've certainly not been tempted to read the book. I've seen the movie three, four times now, and and from what you're saying as well, to appease the censors, Sue Lyon, I think, was 14 when she started filming this. She was 15, nearly 16, I think, when it was all finished. She was still underage because she was actually turned away from the premiere of the movie because she wasn't old enough to watch the film. Oh, did they ask her for ID? Would yeah, they would the not door? let her go to the she premiere. Couldn't, yeah. She couldn't attend it in New York, but yeah. she could attend it in London because yeah. of the different um, the categorization that she's not, in the country. She wasn't old enough to watch herself being sultry on screen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic. And, um, um, I would probably say, you know, you know, the problem is when you when you watch a film a few times and then you go back to the book, the book will spend a long time getting to the thing that you know is already going to happen. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. when I mean, because the story is more or less the same. I'm just going to say later on that, that there's more in the book, as, as you know, clearly there is going to be, you know, because if you filmed a book, you'd end up with like 12-hour film generally. But um, Is it a longer sort of time period over the book? I mean, this is quite an extensive, this goes over a year or so, doesn't it, this, this whole movie? I think even if I think even it's three years later the last scene when she's yeah. apparently according to Wikipedia it would but, be yeah because she was like seventeen eighteen wasn't she I think when she's pregnant towards the end or whatever I don't I don't remember because I've only ever read the book once it was five years ago I skimmed mm. through it yesterday but I don't remember I don't think there's huge differences in that in that way in the time scale as such no no I don't think so no okay no. well let's sort of focus a bit more on the movie now then and, and straight away as, as Stephen just pointed out and you've sort of alluded to as well the movie takes some sort of liberties with chronology and you know the, the timing of things and we get the ending at the beginning of the film mm. 
And that was done deliberately, I read, in doing the little bit of research I did for this. Ah, you did do some research. I did do Scott. some, just a you bit. Did. <laughs> I, have to, I, have to, I have to do something just in case you don't turn up. Um, <laughs> and and uh, again, your your marvellous note straight away. The, the first thing, hands up, who felt uncomfortable just watching the nail painting scene without just even knowing what was going on? Yeah, I think that is one of the key bits that because they've shied away from showing some of the... Or just you know, censored themselves from from showing some of the details that might have been stuff that the censor wouldn't be happy about. They've gone through the whole implied thing, and 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 it's what they're not showing rather than what they are showing, and the intimacy that can be involved in in something in something like that act um, yeah. does actually tell you more in a way than just them, you know, seeing him laid on top of a moving up and down which is how, how I always do it. Um, and um, <laughs> it, 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 it's, um, I think there's, there's, this is where, what you're using as a, as a filmmaker um, to actually get, get the impression of something across. And it's, it's almost like, you know, you have with um, what we said about some of the old thrillers and, and um, horror films where it's what they don't show is, 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 you know, the, in the dark mm. is mm. off screen is leaving it more to your imagination, which means it ends up being uh, more shocking than actually just seeing it played out on screen. And I think that applies mm. particularly to the, the nail painting scene, um, how that that leaves you filling in the blanks, as it were. Yeah, I mean, when that that scene is expanded upon later in the movie when we see the whole context of that nail painting scene and the conversation that's going on, it doesn't have the same impact, I think, mm. as that three-minute opening credit sequence with the theme from Lolita, mm. with vocals by Sue Lyon singing this very childlike song over the intro. It, it, it was just... Because I knew what the movie was about and, and I'd forgotten this opening credit sequence and I'm thinking... Oh, you know, I'm sort of taking a step back myself, you know, thinking, wow, this is 1962. All right, there's nothing in that sequence at all that could upset the senses in any way. It's just mm. my crazy brain working overtime. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of modern-day audiences who are familiar with what the plot of this story is about would be feeling the same. The movie opens at the end. We get, you know, flash-forward at the beginning. And it's we we are introduced to Quilty, we're introduced to Humbert Humbert. We obviously don't know what the plot of the story is at this point, but you've you've made some great notes here, even just about that five minute introduction scene before we go back into the story itself. Mm. Uh, references to Kubrick himself, mate. He says, "I'm I'm Spartacus," and he does this great. I mean, he's drunk, isn't he? I think is he he's drinking champagne, or is yeah, because he, he's under he the drunk, he's he, under yeah. the sheet, isn't he? There's been a party in the house, or something. You 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 think has has gone on because he's yeah, and they're playing they're playing table tennis with the like champagne bottles on the table up there and stuff. Or he's playing table. Apparently, that was at the suggestion of Peter Sellers that that, that prop was there yeah. and it wasn't going to be used. And what you you know how great an actor Peter Sellers is, guys. Right now, what happened mm. was. Kubrick gave Sellers a little bit of a free reign. He said, here's the script, but please feel free to improvise and deviate a wee bit. But because it would be difficult to get 
say there was any mistakes or fluffs or anything, it would be difficult to sort of cut and go back to where they were because Sellers was going off on tangents a lot of the time. Kubrick had to use like two or three cameras each time Sellers was on set. Mm, yeah. Just in case, so he could get reactions from James Mason because he couldn't guarantee he'd get that same reaction again. Get the first take, yeah. first time, yeah. And a lot of that Peter Sellers stuff is improvised. And I don't think it's, it's very obvious watching it because the man was a bloody genius, as we know. But that whole opening scene, if, if you're not aware of the plot, of the whole storyline of this movie, within that first couple of minutes, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm already invested in this. Where are we going? It, it is. It, it draws you, you in and it's, you know, it's the Columbo-esque. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you see the deed being done and then it's, it's how it, it was led. I think it benefits from that because I, I think that they... The film might suffer a bit in the the later acts without there being um, been that foreknowledge of what you're leading up to. You, you might mm. drift. Your actual engagement with, with the characters and where they're going. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's not you know it, one of the, the one of the difficult aspects for me that I've I've had when I previously watched Lolita and this time even more so was that when you're watching a film where there's nobody in it that is somebody that you have sympathy for, that you don't feel any, any you know, any kind of um, tighter, you don't feel that they're somebody who, who is somebody you'd identify with, um, mm. it, it does need more in a story to, to keep you in there. And I know that, the, you know, they are, the, the Peter Sellers character as, as the villain as opposed to the to James Mason, but there's, there's no, everybody in this is, is a little bit, you know, sort of, ghastly in their own way so needing that needing that hook to to keep you engaged all the way through i think that was the right that was a, a perfect way of doing it mm. introducing that at the beginning um to be able to see and then you you you're then watching to see how it led yeah what, to it, that act. what it does it gives you an idea of how important the peter sellers character is going to be because it takes a while for him to be introduced, and when he's introduced, it's sort of like always oh, just a little background character almost. He's not quite relevant. But you know, having seen that introductory scene, that he's going to play an important part throughout the movie. So, I, mm, yeah, carry on, Max. No, as I say, I'm, I'm, I think it's clear that, as, as you said, I mean, I had in my notes that Stanley Kubrick did have a lot of trouble with the sensors, you know, and he checked things out before they started. So I think one of the motives, obviously, when you've got Peter Sellers there, you may as well let him, you know, wind him up and let him go, you know, yeah. and see what comes up. I didn't realise that he actually plays, well, no, does he play, he doesn't necessarily play four roles. I couldn't work out which of them were Quilty pretending to be someone else. But anyway, so obviously, with the limitations, mm. it, it really becomes a different film, really. I think there's quite a bit of difference between the first half and the second half. Is it Quilty playing all the same character? Playing? Uh, I don't know because in in the hotel bit where he's where he's supposed to be a policeman, he's got the exact same American accent, which uh, some people have said actually is is um, an impression of Kubrick because he does sound a lot like Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, I thought is. it was a lot like his uh, president in Doctor Strange. I was waiting yeah. for him to say, "Well, let me finish, Dimitri." <laughs> you know, it's almost. <laughs> it's, well, I, I think the li- I think the limitations allowed it. Or forced it to become a slightly different film, yeah. and and having Sellers there is so handy, you know, that he can. It I takes, guess we'll talk about it. Yeah, it, it, take, it takes something like Kubrick and um, performers like the Hard in Sellers 
to be able to um, sort of tell this this story and and produce a film that is of this level um, within the bounds of what um, the the censors had, and I do think it's better for, you know better for being told within those restrictions. To be perfectly honest, because if it was just told um, outright without that, then I think that perhaps it would it would be less engaging and there would be less imagination to it which would, would, mm. would leave you feeling less rewarded for watching it um i haven't seen well i think i have seen but um i'm not i haven't got any memory whatsoever um whether i've seen it all or bits of it of the the um the later um from the is it early 80s um, 1997 actually yeah, yeah. Uh, with um jeremy irons in it and that's meant to be more fearful to the book and obviously the the level of censorship um at that time was perhaps um different in its attitude but um it certainly didn't have the same impact and whether that was because this had already come before it and the story had already been told in that sense or whether it was just because it genuinely wasn't as good a film by being uh, more literal to the book um, I think that the, probably the the second part of that has a lot to do with why this has the attention that that doesn't, and then I think that they took the, you know, it was just fortunate in some ways that they had to work within those restrictions to create a better film than it would have been. Yeah, I skimmed. Actually, the '97 one is on YouTube, and I, yesterday I just I just watched a couple of scenes, and I mean it is more uncomfortable. You're right, and. Uh, I think also because so much had, had had happened between 62 and 97 in terms of risque films that it probably, I'm, I'm not expecting to be that shocked by, I mean, I'm sh- shocked by the the fact that they're going to go into the subject matter very graphically and not change it like Kubrick did. But I, I think, as you said, the, the impact was less because of what's happened in between 62 and 97 and what you can get away with nowadays. I think the thing is that the, the, the book... Because you've got more time, you've got pages and pages of sort of build up to events, whereas you go more or less straight in in this film. It, it gives more opportunity for you to try and understand this guy. You know, if you care to, of course, you might not care to understand it. But so we yeah. don't really get any background to Humbert Humbert, as, as you've revealed. Like that, you know, that's news to me. What you've mm-hmm. told us about, you know, his early life and his, you know, his first crush and his first love affair. That's right. Carry on through your notes, mate. I mean, we're still talking about the film in general at the moment. I mean, we still haven't got okay. past this introductory scene, but yeah, just just read us through <laughs> some of this stuff that you've jotted down. It's fascinating, some of the bits you pointed out. I really like the first half of this film, and the music was Nelson Riddle, and of course yes. we're all from England. You can't possibly think of Nelson Riddle without thinking of rhyming slang. I'm <laughs> um, just going off for a Nelson. You can... <laughs> or Jimmy, yeah, it was the other one. Jimmy, yeah, or, or Jimmy. Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Riddle, exactly. <laughs> I like the music, so I've written down jazzy, sassy, cha-cha-cha. And there's a kind of sultry, there's a sultriness, like um, Charlotte Hayes, Shelley Winters. Uh, her friends are swingers. Did you pick up on that when they said, oh, yes. you know, we're very open-minded. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you fancy coming around later. So there's a very strong sexual element anyway to the film. And Shelley Winters is obviously this massively horny, sort of sexually frustrated widow. Yes. So the, the music was really good. I actually liked... Um, uh, it was reminiscent of Brief Encounter. There's that, there's that slightly sweeping romantic music. I'll, I'll sort of come when I come to my conclusion of this film. I, I wasn't really very touched by this film. I didn't actually find it that touching. Okay. But the bit the bit where Lolita goes off to summer camp, mm. 
And she says, you know, don't forget me. And they play this sweeping music. And it reminded me of Brief Encounter. <laughs> and me being a big softy, Brief Encounter is one of my favorite films. I absolutely <laughs> love that film. That was that was quite good. There's some good comedic bits, you know, the bit, the hand-holding bit in the cinema where uh, <laughs> Humbert holds Lolita's hand, Charlotte holds Humbert's hand, and then I think they end up holding, they're all holding each other's hands. Right. He, lets go, he lets go of Shelley Winter's hand. She reaches over and realises she's holding both of them. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It is quite light on comedy. I mean, if you pointed out also here the bit with the cop in the bed, that's the most sort of physical comedy element in this in this movie it's not that light-hearted considering you've got peter sellers here i said it, i really feel like this is almost like two films you know it's mm. up to the hotel scene and the quote-unquote rape scene which is one of the most bizarre if you think of the fact that she's propositioning him and saying mm. oh i played this game at summer camp yeah you know technically of course it's rape because of the law but mm. it, it's weird and i found it I enjoyed the cot scene. Like sometimes you can look at things in isolation, you know. That cot scene was funny. It was slapstick. Yeah. You know, it was Lauren Hardy, what Buster Keaton, whatever. But then I listened to a couple of podcasts last night, and uh, not that I not that I let them kind of uh, change my mind, but they pointed something out and they said that sort of having those two scenes together was a bit weird, but uh, mm. yeah. it was a bit of a strange juxtaposition. But no, I mean it was it was great, and there's loads of sexual innuendo. Not actually related to Lolita herself, but just sexual innuendo in the film, and it's. Uh, I, camp, I really enjoyed the first... wasn't it? Yeah, camp cl- Yeah, I mean, <laughs> camp. Um, and, uh, her friend, her friend who would, who she was being sent there with was was called Mona. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So, I mean, there's other ones. There was what about uh, what did I write down that was Doctor Cuddler. On? Doctor Cuddler, I mean, that's just straight out of Carry On, you know. <laughs> yes, Doctor Cuddler, yes. So is all this in the book, or has this been generated for the movie? I don't remember. I can't but remember. I don't, I don't okay. think the stuff uh, that's in the book. I mean, if if I could just read a couple of things, I mean, yeah, it's just, go on. Yeah, it's it's sexually endo, but it's it's amazingly descriptive. There's, Nabokov uses the word throb in many different ways. <laughs> don't we all? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's a description of Lolita playing tennis. Listen to this. She fell upon the small globe, meaning the tennis ball, suspended so high in the zenith of the powerful and graceful cosmos with a clean, resounding crack of her golden whip. Oh, my Lord. And then listen to this. Also about tennis. She revealed an innocence of frankness, a kindness of ball playing that allowed a determined second-rate player to poke and cut his way to victory. And uh, by the way, I didn't mention this at the beginning. This was actually written in English. Did you know that? It was. Oh, it wasn't Nabokov. translated through. It was. It was actually written in English. Oh. Yeah, Nabokov spoke Russian and French, and that's where the sort of the French literature bit comes from. But this was his. I mean, he obviously had a perfect command of English by that point. Oh. Well, fairly perfect. And then Hourglass Lake. Hourglass is obviously to do with a lady's figure. Is there any relevance? The only thing I really picked up on, I mean, I picked up on Camp Climax, obviously. The, my carry-on brain would pick up on that instantly. But Let's say carry, carry on thought, no, the carry-on people thought that was too crude. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it's far too obvious, yeah. Yeah, too broad. Yeah, is there yeah. any relevance to her two schoolmates that she refers to as Rex and Roy, both meaning king? Did oh, anybody else pick know. up on that? I, oh, I, I picked up that they were both, both meant king in... in Obviously, Latin and French, yeah. but um, I, I didn't, I didn't know whether there was a, a, a connection in there. Um, other than that, just being a, a player, you know, a play with the words, yeah. and mm-hmm. having that connection. I didn't know whether there was anything more 
to it. Obviously, with him, James Mason's character having the um, the scholastic background mm. and the education, mm. whether to him that would subliminally um, come across as been that they were even more of a, a threat to him Be because mm. they were, you know, um, elevated by the names, but making them seem more. Um, more highborn and and, yeah. and stuff, or whether it was just a just a way of just playing with with names. I don't know. I didn't know which way it might be implied that the book would maybe have more details or not. That would be where Anthony would probably be able to shine a light in that sense. Whether that that was just a throwaway thing or whether it, it was made more of. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't really remember the finer points of the book because I, I said I skimmed through it yesterday. But mm. um, I think I think the book has got. I mean, there's plenty of description, but perhaps not so much innuendo. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. The the other one, I think it's just from the film, actually, with Humbert reading from his diary. Something about titillation of his vanity, a pattern of remorse daintily running along the steel of his conspiratorial dagger. So it's just everywhere. You know? <laughs> oh, you mentioned the script earlier. Yeah, I think uh, Nabokov wrote a 400-page draft, which apparently would equate to about eight hours of screen time. Excellent. Yeah. And I think they used 20% of it because Kubrick and um, what was the name of his partner? What's the name of Kubrick's production? Harris. Yes. Harris. Yeah. They would tend to take scripts and kind of rework them anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, not taking credit a lot of the time, but. Um, so let's have a look. Dan, Dan on your notes. I'm, I'm just going to keep referring to your notes because I've, oh, got okay. no, I've got no prompts or pointers at all for this episode, mate. I told you. you you've put here Lolita sent to summer camp. Brackets cock blocked by her mother. To <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you, well, the female equivalent of cock blocked. Cock blocked, anyway. excellent, well played. Vagina so. blocked. Yeah, humbert yeah. <laughs> humbert, desolate like a lovesick teenager. Even his yeah. lodging room suggests a teenage bedroom. Yeah, can we talk about this? Go for it. Go on. Mm. Yeah, didn't you think that? Because he he's lodging in a house, so he's kind of got a room, which you don't normally expect. I don't know. A, a, a distinguished professor to to like to have yeah, his own room, yeah. but he's funny because he's got a diary. He's, it's this thing about Arrested Development I was talking about earlier. Mm. He's reading from a diary, you know, writing his diary, and then um, and then when Lolita leaves, he goes to her room and he's crying on her bed. Yes, and if you notice, there's a poster of Quilty on the on the there on is. the wall, that, which obviously yeah. we realise the significance later, yeah. but. He's basically he's he's lying, crying on a bed, and sort of putting the pillow to his face and going Woo, like that. <laughs> and it's very funny. But um, are we going to go on to James Mason? Because there's two scenes I absolutely loved. I thought it was Come brilliant. On, carry on, sir. Carry on. No, do it. Yeah, the two the two James Mason scenes I love. The bit where he's laughing at her letter. That just seems so Charlotte's letter, Shelley Winters. Mm. That, that proposition letter. And we know, obviously, he only marries her so he can stay with Lolita. But it's that build-up of laughter. I'm laughing at it now, <laughs> thinking about it. Sort of going, <laughs> and, it's just, and it just seems so genuine. And then the other one was after Charlotte dies, you know, she's run over by the car. Mm-hmm. Do you remember where her friends, who were the swingers, and the father of the hit-and-run driver come in, and James Mason's drinking champagne in the bath? Yes. <laughs> And again, it's kind of sexual, because unless you know he has a bath in his shorts, he's obviously naked under the bath. But he's he's kind of drunk, and it's just something so lovely about his voice. Like when the, the father says, oh, something about we'll make a settlement, and James Mason says, oh, that's terribly kind of you. And there's this lovely kind of sultry sort of voice he puts on. It's very, it's great, yeah. I mean, uh, 
I'll criticize the second half of the film later. That's all right. But, <laughs> but he plays this kind of, kind of like a lovesick puppy, really. Yeah. And Stephen, I don't know you and me being ignorant of the book to a certain degree. We're not sort of privy to this, this background that Anthony has, has, has learned of Humbert Humbert's character. I mean, did it all sort of make sense to you? the development or the, the progression of his character at all? Or was it just a bit, well, why is he behaving like that? Because yeah. some of it to me was a bit, well, hang on, I don't know enough about this guy to, to realise why he's actually behaving this way. I, th- I think it's a bit more apparent from, I watched it last night, um, f- from watching it last night, there was a bit more where I could see the threads that were all in, in sort of what was implied um, like you said, with the diary writing and, and some of the other things where he, the arrested development, it still wasn't to the extent in the book, obviously, because um, there isn't the, the ability to to do that in a, a film even of this length. But previously, uh, I, I didn't pick up on that at all. And it was only last night there, were, there was little tidbits of it that, that led me into that. But certainly it, it isn't obvious and there isn't the, the open sort of acknowledgement of it. So it, it does leave you more more wanting to just think that he's just an, an opportunist dirty old man rather than it being mm. that, that there is this background behind him you know he's, he's certainly you know he's, he's not getting into a, a, a stage of when he's getting questioned um by Shelley Winters about his um previous partners and things and he, his reaction to that being quite angry but also in a, a matter of fact about just listing them with descriptions sort of thing I think it's, it's difficult to portray properly in a film somebody with arrested development like that without it being mm. too cliche. But um, you can certainly see indications of it in if, if you're watching it with that in mind. But still, it's difficult to, to have sympathy for, for him as a, as, a, as a character anyway. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it, and, and as a main character, that's what you normally be, would be having. There'd be somebody in there that... that and as I said before, we are having somebody you can you can latch onto in that way. Um, it doesn't make it a bit diff- more difficult of a watch for me. Yeah. Well, let, let's focus on the cast, and we'll, we'll start with James Mason. I mean, okay. We, we've never had a bad word said against James Mason so far <laughs> on the Real Britannia, Stephen. I think that's fair to say. I mean, the man is more than competent an actor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is. He's, he's no dancer um, a bunch of this film, um, but um, which is one of the funniest bits in it, seeing, you know, that out of all, you know. Yeah, how stiff that, he is. And, yeah, yeah how, how, you want to rephrase that. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, uh, this conversation is just like what you said about titillation. So, uh, yeah. It, 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 and, yeah. And, the carry on mind um, amongst us all. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's certainly an actor of, of enormous ability and to convey... He's, you know, it's it's not merely delivering sort of just a dramatic role. He does have more to him than than that. But certainly, he, there's a certain in, in certain points of this, it's the understatedness of him. It's very easy in some scenes, particularly with Peter Sellers, where he's he's very much sort of pushed into a secondary role, and in, in Shelley Winters as well when she's doing a full on yeah. um, Harry and um, act. But you can the subtleties of his performance, you know, his, his his facial expressions, his his small movements and things does actually um, show his his vast ability. So we won't say a, a bad word said about as an actor. Absolutely not. No, uh, no. I mean, I haven't got any bad words. I'd say good. my criticisms late. Yeah, <laughs> my criticisms. Uh, 
a more like towards the end of the story. But anyway, yeah. Mm, but yeah. Um, I think he's really good actually when he's when he's with someone who's a bit more um, uh, what's the word? Not extrovert, but uh, I mean bombastic. he's char- bombastic. There you go. Mm. Thank you. Yes, because uh, he's charismatic, but he's not charismatic in a bombastic way. So he plays off really well with Sellers and with Shelley Winters, as you said. Well, the role was offered. No, I'm trying to get this right. I believe it was offered to David Niven. Yeah, I think it was offered to James Mason first. Yeah. And he couldn't do it because of contractual um, complications. He was already engaged to it do it. He was in a play, wasn't he? Play, and that yes. was it, a play. And then that's when they started shopping it around other people, which you've got, you'll have a, a list of um, who they went through before they eventually managed to return to James Mason. But there was a, there's a few, you know, I'm sure you can fill in. Who they were, I know of a couple of them, but you probably know of more. Well, also, sorry, James Mason was offered the role of Quilty as well. Ah, um, yeah, yeah, because in the 1997 film, although I haven't seen it, I've, I've looked at bits of it, Quilty is much older and he's sort of a dirty old man making uh, art films, right? But well, what happened? Which Sellers is not at all, you know, yeah. Really. During the filming, uh, James Mason realized that Peter Sellers was actually taking the limelight a little bit you know he was stealing the picture and he said if he'd have known he should have insisted on playing Quilty himself I read somewhere else that I think another person that was up for it and turned it down immediately without even blinking was Cary Grant Mm. but but you can see Cary Grant you could see David Niven in in that role but fair play I love James Mason in this yeah, Eustonoff was the other one, sorry. Lawrence Peter Olivier, Eustonoff yes, and Niven. Yes, Lawrence yeah. Olivier, yes, that was it. I remember That's reading it. that as well. Olivier would have been good, actually. Yeah, I think Olivier would be good in almost everything, really. Yeah. There is actually he's, a really... He's not a bad actor, is he? He's, he's, not he's bad. done okay over the years, yeah. There's actually, um, slight tangent, but there's a, there's a very good Olivier film called Term of Trial from 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of those kind of prize of arms esque ones that I just remember watching, <laughs> recording when I was about fourteen, and I watched it. And it's actually uh, it's actually kind of the opposite. He's a school teacher, and a young schoolgirl falls in love with him. But he does that very well and very tastefully. So I mean, Olivier, as I said, would have been good in almost everything. Of but, he would, uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, he could have done that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about let's say Shelley Winters. We haven't really focused on Shelley Winters. Mm. Playing Shelley Winters in this, <laughs> she does though, doesn't she? Charlotte hates. Yeah, yeah I she... mean, it's it's who we, you know, there's a, a a great amount of sort of her memorable roles now amongst certain people. Mm. Um, you know, it is playing this this kind of character, even mm-hmm. though you know, there was a bit more, there was more to her um, in her career. I think there was a bit of typecasting that maybe came in, but she, um, you know, particularly after Alfie. Um, left her in this age, you know, aging woman who was who was wanting to try and capture a man. Again, you can't you can't criticise her for for how she performs. That you know, that the role is what the role is. That's how it's written, mm. and she performs it. You know, can't you know, hard to imagine anybody else been able to to play it quite as as well. I mean, you know, it, um, might have been interesting to see somebody like Liz Taylor in a, in a, in a later stage. Is not at the time maybe, but in a later stage, is playing a um, a similar role, but um, yeah. sort of washed up older woman. But but certainly Shelley Winters, this, her performance in this is is exactly what's needed and, and so. has yeah. that that strength so to well. it, and certainly particularly conveys. 
the strength of character in certain senses, but also the the, the duality of the desperation as mm. well. That's the um, bit that comes across for me, the desperation side of things, yeah. I think. She does that so and, well, yeah. And so, she, you know, she's, she's obviously a strong character within other senses, within to other people um, within the story, but she's, you know, her desperation is, is what um, underscores her um, time on screen, a lot of it. And then to, to go out the way she did, you know, which is the plot requires... It is certainly effective in in a way of making sure that we you know we, that that character is removed from the 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 board um in such a decisive way i mean she was great yeah the only reason i didn't miss her is because her character was so annoying uh, <laughs> i was quite quite pleased when she was out the story but that's nothing against, there's nothing against shelley she was absolutely played it to exactly a, to a it was written as annoying and, and that's yeah. what she played yeah, yeah. I and mean, there's yeah. you, know, we, you know we can all think of examples of that in other films where you you hate a character or find them annoying or whatever but that's because they've been played so well and they've also See. been written well as well yeah the actors uh, done their job basically uh, yeah let's talk about the, the star of the show sue lyon marianne stone oh. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. um Sue Lyon, the, part of the reason I suggested this was because in the back of my brain, Sue Lyon, um, I remembered, passed away uh, Boxing Day last year at Christmas. And I, I was just remembering at Christmas, I thought, you know what, I'm going to watch Lolita again. And this is part of the reason I brought it up for you guys to sort of discuss today on Real Britannia. As we said, she was 14 going on 15. I think she was 16 pretty much when the premiere came about. She's playing somebody older than... The title character in the book. I'm right. We've mentioned this, haven't we? We've said that the title character was a little bit younger. Is that right? Twelve, 12 and a half. Twelve and a half. At the beginning, yeah, so it goes she's on to be 13, definitely 14. said to be fourteen in this, isn't she? And mm. then sort of seventeen towards the end when she's pregnant. It's a classic example of a child actor that is not crap in this. <laughs> you know, you get those child actors that are just desperately bad in certain movies, probably slightly younger than she is in mm. this. But, and I'm, and I'm not meaning this in a pervy way or a salacious way, but there were certain times when I'm watching and thinking, that is an adult acting. There's, mm. there's the bit in the car, I think it's probably just before or just after he tells her that her mother's dead. And she's doing this very childlike thing, sucking on the bottle uh, of Pepsi and eating crisps yeah. out of the bag and things like that. And you think, yep, okay, she's playing a kid there. But then I think there's a later scene in the car and the way she's talking and the way she's interacting with James Mason and sort of almost manipulating as well, mm. I couldn't see that as a 14-year-old girl. That was an adult acting in my eyes. She was bloody fantastic in this. I mean, a lot of child actors, I don't know what age she started acting, but there are there are actors who get to sort of 16. They've already got 10 years behind them. She did a TV series before this. I think she was in like yeah. a long-running American soap or comedy or something before. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, she's, she's fine in the role. It's fine. Uh, I just... <laughs> I don't know if we want to talk about this now, but I just have issues with the second half of the film, but it's not really her fault. It's Okay, yeah, go on. I feel like it's kind of... It's almost like two films. Like, when there's... I mean, Shirley Winter's character was annoying, yes, but the bit when they were at the dance and everything, that was all really good, you know, and she's mm -hmm. dancing with Peter Sellers and everything. But I think the problem is, and I listened to a podcast last night and they kind of agreed with it, because she's a little bit older, and I don't know what age you think Sue Lyon 
looked. I mean, they sort of shamelessly used her for publicity. Oh God, yeah, yeah. You know, and and very much sexualized her, which which is almost normal now. You know, with it with internet culture. You know, that's that's not a, that's not it's how we usual podcast see. definitely <laughs> <laughs> right. Me and Scotland have gone. Um, Scott have gone through so many lollipops for photo shoots. <laughs> no, I was going to say with the with the age change, I was trying to I was trying to think what was wrong with it. What was wrong with this last night? And I and I kind of came up with a. It's more like James Mason's kind of like when a, your dad or a dad um, fancies his girlfriend's mate. It was more like that rather than being this sort of serious pathology you know mm. as it is in the book and i'm sorry for going really deep into no, this no, but cool. yeah. it's so much more explained in the book that when when you're kind of pitching it when you when you raise her age to 14 and because it was compromised it becomes almost like not one thing nor another and it becomes the best phrase that could come up it's pervy rather than a sort of pathological perversion oh. you know what i mean <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, there's a small distinction you can make. I think it's like, so. oh, ugh, he fancies her. But then right. when you kind of, as I said, the quote unquote rape scene in the hotel, which is basically instigated. I mean, OK, he's obviously, mm. but she sort of instigates it in a, you know, if you look at it superficially. It's, I don't know, it gets this kind of halfway house almost. And his behavior is just when when he's going on about um I'm just using excuses to do my James Mason. You have to be careful of those boys. They're only after one thing. <laughs> and it's like, well, what are you? He's like, well, what about you? Yeah. I don't know. This is something a little bit strange. Maybe I'm a bit biased, perhaps, because a lot of the time I do prefer books over films. People do. Uh, one of the podcasts I was listening to said it works as a film, but doesn't work as an adaptation. So that would probably be my kind of conclusion, basically. I mean, did we you enjoy know, the film as a whole, the three of us? I mean, I've, I've made no secret this is my favourite Kubrick movie. I, I'm, uh, I, it's interesting. Yeah, that's what everybody says, really? <laughs> interesting, yeah. They use the word interesting. Interesting, they, yeah. okay, tell me yeah. more. No, because <laughs> In, interesting is a code for what the fuck? You know. I, I, I like 2001, I like The Shining. You know, I've never been a big fan of Full Metal Jacket apart from the first 45 minutes, you know. Mm. This one, I think, more more appeals to me because it's a 60s movie. It's got Peter Sellers in it, who is, you know, one of my favourite actors. It's just that whole Britishness of it as well, even though it's set in America. It's just, to me, it's just something a little bit different from Kubrick that I don't want to run with the crowd, almost, as well. Yeah, 2001, you know, The Shining, great. It took me a long time to get those movies. I've said this before on different podcasts that... I'd seen 2001 three, four, five times, same as The Shining, and didn't really get them until I watched them on the big screen after my fourth or fifth showing. Well, Scott, one day, you mm -hmm. and I, mm -hmm. we'll smoke a bowl and we'll watch it. <laughs> and then it'll be a totally different movie altogether. And my stone-slash-Kubrick-loving 2001 <laughs> energy will propel you into a, a deep love of 2001. I, I, I don't hate the film, and I do like it, <laughs> but I think... This is possibly my favourite. Spartacus was always top of the tree for me. I loved Spartacus. But on the whole, how, what were our general thoughts on this movie? I mean, only saying there's, there's two different movies here. It's mm. it's enjoyable, but there's problems with it. Is that what we're getting at with you, mate, here? There's things that are not quite sitting mm. right for you? Yeah, I, I think the other thing is kind of... A, I'll say this as kind of a question to you two. Did you feel that there was much chemistry because 
clearly there wasn't meant to be chemistry between Humbert and Charlotte, Shelley Winters. Yeah. That was really the whole point, that there wasn't chemistry. But I don't know, with the book as well, sorry to go back to the book again, mm. the kind of road movie aspect, which is kind of what it becomes, isn't it, in the second half. I actually found that quite boring in the book as well. Uh, and there's something about their relationship that's actually not very interesting. Like they're both and feel absolutely feel free to disagree with me. It's just my opinion, but I kind of find them both slightly annoying. Like she's annoying in a teenage way, mm-hmm. but he's annoying almost in a teenage way. That <laughs> these sort of melodramatic outbursts he has. I mean, I love the bit at the end, right at the end with the hospital. You know, when they're sort of going to put him in a straitjacket. Yeah. I thought that was brilliant. The way he did that was absolutely fantastic. Mm. I actually, one of the characters I really liked was her husband at the end. I just thought he was actually one of the more touching characters because he, he was just being so nice and so decent. And, <laughs> you know, he was a kind of a common sort of simple guy. Oh, you know, welcome into our house and everything. I actually found that quite touching, but I didn't really find much emotion in their relationship so can i ask you guys that question see that's interesting because you've got more of a background on the character than we have yeah but even leaving but i mean even leaving aside the book what do you think do you think there was much chemistry between those two in the film i mean personally steve i'm gonna i'm gonna hand this over to you but personally i just found it all a little bit bizarre some of the things that happened and some of the situations yeah, of and some of the reactions <laughs> i don't think it was fleshed out enough mm. it just things just sort of happened with no explanation and i also just one more thing that that dr zempf the mm. peter said that just seems really tacked on i mean perhaps it's because i love doctors his doctor strange love yeah the character so much yeah. That just seemed like a kind of poor man's Doctor Strangelove, but of course it was before Doctor Strangelove, so fair enough, that came first. Yeah. But and I, I like there are bits in the script I absolutely love that. Do you remember when? Um, again, I'm not sure if it's Sellers or Quilty or both. You know, he's the uh, the policeman because obviously there's a policeman's um, convention. Oh, what do you call it? Convention. Mm-hmm. Do you remember he keeps going on about things being normal? Oh, it's perfectly normal, and uh, he just keeps using the word normal, and it's so funny because obviously the whole situation is completely abnormal. <laughs> but uh, I just I thought that Doctor Zemp was really tacked on, and uh, it's one of the things when I was listening to some analysis of it last night. They said something. There was something really weird. Some weird quote of Kubrick's about, oh, the film runs out of steam once Humbert sort of conquested her. Or had his conquest. It does and of course, become that's a different all, movie. It does become a different, yeah, the, the pace uh, changes then. Oh, and of course, it's all very bizarre. Like I said, this thing about changing the age, so it's not one thing nor another. You know, it's it's more like pervy than perverted, if that makes sense. It's yeah. that That's kind of my problems with it. But, you know, I had no problem with the entertainment. You know, it was two and a half hours. I wasn't bored at all, really. It was one of those. Yeah. I wasn't bored, but then when I look back a bit and listen to other people talk about it, Steve. Kind of felt like I had a few holes, but anyway, that's yeah. my that's my lot. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen, your thoughts are. <laughs> well, I think with the going back to the question of the the the, the chemistry, there isn't a, a a chemistry between them. I think the only time the scene has been anything that could relate to that is is the brief moment, the almost brief counter moment, which uh, yeah. Auntie mentions, and when she comes up the stairs to kiss him as she's about to go to away to the summer camp, yeah. but. Otherwise, you I, I agree in the aspect of 
none of them are, are likable and neither of them are, can you see why they have any interest you know you yourself can't see why you would be interested in either of them because uh, yeah. you, you wouldn't want to spend time with either of them really <laughs> any extended and I, I think that it boils down to that the relationship is based upon them what they want to get from each other mm. um, and obviously that's quite strongly influenced by the, the the way in which uh stop her having any life outside of of him at the the points you know we've seen over other friends and the being other boys and and school play and the piano lessons and all that background um that self selfishness which they both possess because obviously she's the implication is that she isn't a, a victim completely in this she is selfishly manipulating him for for her own ends as well yeah. It, it puts them on a similar level of both not being likable and not being people you um, you can understand why they they want to have anything to do with each other. Never mind you wanting to have anything to do with them. And I, I don't think there's a difficulty in having a film with the prominent characters in like that. I mean, you you know you obviously do have other characters, you know, other films where the 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 lead characters are unlikable and, and it's. It, that is the, the selling point on them, you know, um, mm. Virginia Woolf and, and things like that, whether it's just that whole point is the conflict. This isn't strictly speaking about the conflict. It's more about the meant to be about the relationship between them. that's drawing them together rather than breaking them apart. And I don't mm. say so it's difficult to have that narrative in a film without the thought process that's going on, which is would be a voiceover in more yeah. expansive terms in this, I suppose in the book, there's a lot more of what he's thinking um, through different bits of it rather than just what's physically enacted on and seen on screen. And and that maybe does deter from this film a little bit in that sense. But I think it's, it, it, it's an interesting story um, in a sense, although it does have its flat bits. I just, uh, you know, it's difficult to engage with it completely as you would maybe some other films as far as it being a favourite for me because of the fact that um, that the, the characters, I can't, I can't feel any, any desire to, to, to know more about them. than um, mm. I see, you know, I don't, I don't end up thinking what happens after this film. I just think, oh, I'm, um, glad to be done with them now. <laughs> the, the other thing about it is that, I don't know, again, I was thinking, I was thinking about this. She seems more to me like a, Rather than being like a precocious fourteen-year-old, she seems more like an immature sixteen or seventeen-year-old. And again, if you take away the quote-unquote interesting idea of this guy who's into prepubescent girls, and you can decide whether you think that's interesting or not, or just kind of gross, yeah. she just comes across as an as an annoying, immature sixteen, seventeen-year-old. Do you know what? And I think she does come across that towards sort of towards the end of the film yeah she, I mean, actually, outs- first... she, out- she actually outsmarts him yeah um he's but... sort of manipulated by her because she realizes exactly what he's like we don't get from what mm. you're saying we, when we've got this thing in the book about the the arrested development that you were talking about you know this mm. this torturous soul that he is we don't get so much of that we just get this feeling that she's manipulating him because she's actually a lot smarter than he is I yeah. think. Well, remember I think emotionally, those... I think emo- emotionally and 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 socially, she is more in- intelligent than him. Yeah. Obviously, not not 
academically. But, but certainly he's, you know, she, although at, at some level in the film, they're, they're on par with each other, um, both being like almost like 14-year-olds, as you say, because that's where mm. his, his development was arrested. I think she she outstrips him and and, and leaves him behind, um, which is why she ends up in, you know, in in the position she is in where he's just left um, a, a mess yeah. that's left behind sort of thing. But what I also feel is that you don't get to know Lolita um, as a person as such. Because mm. what we see is everything from James Mason's point of view. We don't see it from hers. No. At all. Mm. And I think from what I've sort of read and what Anthony's been saying, we may get more of that side of things from the book. And also in the book, from what I've read and what Anthony said as well, it's not just this infatuation with one girl. He's had this infatuation with young girls all his life. That's what I mean. He's tortured. Mm. The other thing in the book is that they describe how Lolita... Lolita's life becomes like crushingly lonely. Mm-hmm. But in the film, it's he, because James Mason's basically this kind of 15 year old boy trapped in an adult's body, basically. It, it, it's almost like two 15 year olds, <laughs> uh, one of them just really possessive and says, Oh, you know, I don't want you playing with those other boys. You know what they're after? Because he's James Mason is basically a 50 year old hormonal teenager. Yeah. You know? And the other thing, I mean, does he. Does he love her? Did you get any sense that he loves her? Or did you just get a sense that he's just... In the end, it just seemed like he... Almost like he killed Quilty. It was more of a kind of dick-waving thing. You know, It was more like a... You know, the old thing of two guys after the same girl and, you know, they're willing to kill the other one Mm. because he got the girl kind of thing. I didn't really get any sense that he loved her at all. And perhaps he wasn't supposed to. Perhaps it was just pure lust. You know, he was just... I said, a horny teenager in the body of a middle-aged man, basically. <laughs> it, it's an interesting movie. We could probably go on talking. I mean, we've been talking for about an hour and a half now. We could probably talk for another two hours because we haven't really broken this down scene by scene, but that's something we don't tend to do on this podcast. We do a general no, we'll, we'll do the four-hour version. With, the, yeah, the, the, the Patreon special, <laughs> if ever we get to the The addendum, it. yeah, the addendum, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything either of you want to sort of say in summary? Let's let's turn to Stephen first. I mean, mate, is, you've seen this a couple of times. It's a, another recent watch for you. You've seen Kubrick movies before. General thoughts and feelings, just to sum it up, mate. I think that obviously for completists, you're going to have to see it. And I think that for people who are fans of cinema in general, it is a must um, to see because of the, the subject matter, deal with a subject matter like this. I mean, I know that there was, you know, to some extent, the publicity around it, which is how, you know, how do you uh, make a film of of the book Lolita sort of thing was the, mm. you know, selling point that was there were sort of almost daring people to go and see how they had done it. So I think there's definitely, you know, it's important film in that sense. It's, for me, it's not, it, it, it's got some great, the performances in it and the, the, um, the way in which the art of filmmaking is is done is really the um the selling point for this film i think that the um the the plot in itself um i don't find um necessarily engaging um which is why i've i've not really been tempted to go and, and watch other uh, interpretations of it uh, mm. i feel that this is you know this has taken 
uh, a subject, you know, the the, the topic, the, the the book, um, and actually made something um more cinematic out of it that's actually worth your time. Then I mean, mm. it's two and a half hours long, and that um, normally would require quite a lot of stuff um, in a plot. I mean, you imagine what they now managed to cram into some of the uh, comic book films, um, which is you know an immense amount. We've we've a lot more characters usually. You know, there's, there's fifty different um, leads. So I think that this is a a, a a great example of filmmaking, and that is is a selling point. I think beyond that, for other people going seeing it, I'm not sure it's something that's it's that's an easy sell to advise people to be um, to be watching it in and of itself if it's not for the for the filmmaking and, and performances really. That's my my synopsis of it, really, for as far as uh, rating and, and recommendation. Yeah, Anthony. I mean, you said there's, there's two different movies here, with you yeah. watching it. My, I've just got a couple of closing comments. Yeah. I, I've I've said pretty much everything I wanted to say. So um, yeah, I mean, Stanley Kubrick. We didn't really talk much about whether this is a typical film of his, but um, he's not. I suppose people that don't like Stanley Kubrick would say he's not really strong on characters, and you know, it gets to the point where 2001. The whole point of those two guys, you know, with Hal the computer, mm. the whole point is that the two guys act like robots and they've got no personality at all. Yeah. So um, I'd say he's probably not that strong on characters. You know, would I recommend this? Absolutely. You know, if someone said, shall I watch Lolita or not? I'd say absolutely. Yeah. Because I love the first half. It's very stylish. I love the music. Performances are great. You you know me. I'm I'm guilty always of over analysis. You know, I have a <laughs> psychology background and... You know, I, I'm made to, to overanalyze things. So, you know, we've, we've said, uh, I'm sure that the times we've worked together, we've said there's two ways of watching a film. You watch it for entertainment mm-hmm. or you watch it, you know, on the merits of how amazing a film it is. Is it sort of sound in terms of its its logic? And this is a weird film because I, I almost forgot the age thing and it and it seems more like, almost like a story of two teenagers at certain times. Yeah, that's the thing I think I'm going to take away from this, <laughs> is, is realising that side of things. They kind of rescue it at the end, because that, that scene where he's being carried out of the hospital, I thought that was brilliant, when they're about to put him in a straitjacket. Yeah. Um, I would have kind of liked to have seen Quilty somewhere towards the end. I know they flashed, obviously, back to the bit where he gets shot. Mm-hmm. And I love it when he says, Quilty, try and understand what's about to happen to you. <laughs> like, would you, have you ever like, well, I'm sure you'd never thought of shooting anyone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, if you were going to shoot someone, would, is that what you'd say to them? Try to understand what's about to happen I'd, to you. I'd certainly do it in that voice. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I would as well. <clears throat> but no, uh, uh, would I recommend the film to watch? Yes. Yes. Definitely. Fantastic. Definitely. Yeah, as I say, my, my favourite Kubrick film and some of the reasons I like it may sound like criticisms, but I think it's what makes it unique amongst the Kubrick movies. I think at some points, Peter Sellers seems like he's in a movie on his own, a completely different film. <laughs> yeah. As you said, the music, Nelson Riddle, fantastic. Lolita's theme, Sue Lyon, just la 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 all the way through. Marvellous. Absolutely suits the tone of the movie can be a bit too light-hearted in places for the subject matter, but two-and-a-half-hour movie, as you say, there's a lot to take in, there's a lot to digest here. It's a shame that Sue Lyon never really went on 
to anything else. I think she was defined by this movie. She was in Night of the Iguana with Richard Burton a couple of years later, a couple of other things, but nothing major after this, which is a real shame because, as I say, she showed great potential. She was a very mature actress for a 14-year-old. Um, Shelley Winters, totally annoying in this film, which is the mark <laughs> of a fine actress because she has done exactly what was expected of her. And as Stephen pointed out, it's got Marianne Stone in it, so it's got to be recommended by the Real Britannia crew. It has to be. Uh, so would lovers, would lovers of this film like Confessions of a Window Cleaner? Is that a bit of a stretch? No, no, no. It's, it's got Marianne Stone in it, mate. That's fine. It's, it's just that this one, and I think it was Heavens Above, wasn't it, Stephen, where she's given just a little bit more to do than just being someone behind a bar or, you know, somebody in the background. So it's nice, yeah, nice heavens to above, see. We, we loved that role because mm. it was the one where she was the gypsy's wife who delivered all of her lines <laughs> via having a cigarette hanging off her lip. Um, it was m- monumental really yeah. to see um, yeah. a variety of, of, of roles. Um, and this, you know, this is again, a, a one where she, she has a, more defined presence on screen and unlike some of them where you, you blink and miss her. Yeah. There's, ne- there's never a Marianne Stone film that's not worth watching just for Marianne Stone, but, nope. you know. Yeah. You, you'll you'll yep. spot her in everything now, Anthony. You will do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, generally, I think this is just a recommend from all three of us. Yeah, absolutely. Just as a piece of entertainment. Remember when we, we, we did How I Won the War together, the three mm. of us? We said you'd come out of the cinema in 1967 with a bad taste in your mouth after watching that because it was just so <laughs> dark and weird. This is weird, but I think if you just in, if you're in 1962 and you you you're on a Saturday night, you went out to the cinema, you'd come back thinking, "Oh, that was entertaining," you know. Yeah. Can Can I just go back to one of the first questions I asked before we started all this? Mm. Have, have we come out of this movie feeling a bit uncomfortable, or is that not part of what we're really sort of experienced watching this? Honestly, no, because the age thing, I think because of the changes they made, it, it was so sanitized. Yeah. It just, I don't know. It's like, I mean, sorry to repeat what I said earlier. It's just like other films where you've got like a kind of pervy uncle, you know, that would make you slightly uncomfortable. But I think, the, I think the comedic aspects of it, 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 I don't know. It just t- takes you out of that. It belays that I think. Bit, yeah. I think a lot of it depends on whether you've read a book as well. I mean, if you, you know, I, think but, I mean, that's true. That's true of loads of films, though, isn't it? You know, if you fall in love, uh, fall in love. Jesus, got to worry about everything I say today. <laughs> <laughs> when you uh, greatly admire uh, a book, um, then you, then you go to a film, and obviously, it's not going to have as many details. You know, it's not. You can't make a 12-hour film. You can't film every second of a book. So mm. I think that may the, might be the difference that mine and Stephen's viewings are, are to yours because we haven't got that background of the novel. Yeah. Uh, and we may have been seeing James Mason slightly differently without knowing that full Arrested Development thing, Stephen. I think that's probably fair to say, isn't it? I think you're absolutely right there, yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. Highly recommended. Please go and watch it. It is one of the underseen Kubricks. I mean, whenever people talk about Stanley Kubrick, they'll just say Clockwork Orange, whatever, mm-hmm. wouldn't they? The Shining 2001. Yeah. Yeah, certainly worth it. Right, I'll tell you what, Stephen, I think we better invite him back, didn't you? I don't see why not. I mean, you know. Was that he, enough detail? Well, so I was a bit, yeah, light think, on, yeah. a bit light on detail today. Sorry, I, guys. I, I, I think, to be perfectly honest, I think he, 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 
he needs to be brought back to just learn how to podcast from us. Um, uh, learn how uh, to be more con- precise. Con- uh, learn how to be more concise. Learn how to pronounce yeah. words. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what... You don't look at me for that, honestly. Uh, um, let's take a break. We'll be back after this. <laughs> Stephen Anthony, that was Lolita from 1962. Now, as we say, Anthony, you are more than welcome to come back, but as I selected this one and last time you were on, you chose How I Won the War yourself. I think it's only fair that we let Stephen have a, have a go. So he's having had a little think and hopefully he's come up with something that we're <laughs> all going to agree, disagree, fight over. Who knows what you got in mind, mate? Well, I've, going back to um, Anthony, does obviously do the, the this research and so doing doing a film in which there's been a, a lot written about the film um, due to its its cult status. I think it, it maybe is the right one to place on the table at this point. It's a film that's actually set in the '60s, but actually um, was was made in the late '80s. Certainly, one of the one of the characters has a Lenin-esque. Uh, glasses on throughout a lot of the film but um it's the the cult film uh, with Nell and I oh <laughs> I've only ever seen that once in um, about 1996 or something I, yeah. I think there might be a certain amount of um uh, opinions <sighs> given given on 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 that one what do you think Scott um, we covered it on stinking paws many years ago mm I'm fully appreciative of its cult status. I'm not one of these people that rave about it. I'm aware, yeah. Yeah, I like well, it. Well, that's what makes it more interesting. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Um, I've seen it probably three or four times. It's one that I want to see again. I know it was one that you were probably going to bring to the table, Stephen, eventually. And <laughs> if you guys have not seen Richard E. Grant doing his With Now Twitter thing at the moment, please go. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing these isolation quotes from Withnell at the moment um, and they're absolutely hilarious Stephen aren't they at the moment he's absolutely yeah, yeah. yesterday he was um, I think it was yesterday the one he was delivering and he, he couldn't deliver it without cracking up laughing Yeah. Um, and apparently that's what he, he during the actual filming he had exactly the same problem and he, he managed one out of 70 takes where he didn't actually crack up laughing and that was the only one they could use and he, um so yeah he's it, it, that is entertaining in itself um and i have a i have an understanding of, of the cult status of it but i i, I sort of flip between you know between the two over the period of my life about how um how deserving i think um it, it is of it Ooh, uh, this could be interesting. Yeah. It's, it's going to be one of those reviews where we do a lot of quotes and a lot of laughing over certain scenes. Yeah, and I think so, there's been so much. There's a, there's a lot been done to to read 
into the film, mm-hmm. um, which we might benefit from um, Anthony being on with, with his research element um, and his, and I think more so um, because of his uh, background with psychology, him actually not just not just the story in itself and the characters and psychology of that, but also why you know bringing his his knowledge of psychology to why it has a cult status might be something that he he, he might be able to um, say. He might not understand it either, but um, it's it's a. I'll try. It's a, it's a bit of a. Uh, it, it's I think it's something worthy of discussion in a way. So yeah. there it is on the table. It's really interesting. Uh, this is almost completely slipped the net for me. I watched it once. Like I say, I would say it was about 1995 or something. Uh, I'm looking forward to revisiting this it like, almost 25 years later. This yeah. could be good. And then if you oh. marry all this up with my my vast experience as a raging alcoholic, we've really got <laughs> the perfect Well, I've podcast. got lots of experience with Camberwell carrots, so between the two <laughs> and, of us. And I've got fun. a certain amount of eating cake. So. We oh, go. well... <laughs> And there we go. It's the perfect storm, gents. It is. <laughs> we will talk off air about when we're going to reconvene. Um, before we go, Anthony, tell us briefly. Well, take take your time, mate. T- tell us about Glass Onion on John Lennon. No, I've got nothing left now, so it's going to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon. Uh, deep dive, as they say in America. Yeah, as I said, lots of Be- there's lots of Beatles podcasts out there. As far as I could see on iTunes, there's only my one for John Lennon. Yeah, it's just it's a deep dive. It's trying to look at aspects that are not normally looked at, even though it appears on the surface that he's a subject that just gets talked about all the time. You know, I've been going, I've done 30, nearly 40 episodes, actually. Yeah. And it doesn't look like I'm going to run out of material anytime soon. So, um, yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon, and the Twitter is at Onion Lennon, capital O, capital L. And thank you very much for having me on today. I'm glad you enjoyed my notes and my over-analysis. And I look forward to doing it again. And Scott Scott will be on my show very soon. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're recording next week. Uh, Nowhere Boy, the movie, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, and I'll I'll do... I'll have my version of How I Won the War on my show, so it'll be a Scott double bill. So. What a treat. What a treat for Scott fans out there. (laughs) Yeah. Before we go, I don't mention this very often. We have a Facebook grape. Facebook grape. We have a Facebook group. Facebook <laughs> grape. Other fruits are available. Um, please come along and join us. Just for the fact that I can't even say the word Facebook group. Uh, there, there's Twitter. There's, we're we're everywhere. Um, Stephen, thank you for being there today. My pleasure. Thanks to Anthony because if it wasn't for Anthony, I think this would have been. Probably 20 minutes or so. I don't know. It's like... been our, our usual limp effort it without him, yeah. Faltering along as we normally do. Trying to uh, pronounce words that we don't know what they mean, yeah. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. Please take care. I'll see you all very soon. Bye bye. Very welcome. Bye. Take care. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. Ha, ha, ha.